So we're in this really exciting time where we finally have a satellite LIDAR that's designed for forest structure. I mean, that's Jedi, right? But on the horizon, we're going to be even more data rich because we have a whole series of other remote sensing technologies that will be launched in the next few years that will be collecting different types of forest structure data. Welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. My guest on the show today is Laura Duncanson. Laura is an assistant professor at the University of Maryland College Park in the Department of Geographic Sciences. And today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about lasers in space. Not the handheld kind of space lasers you might normally associate with something called JEDI, but we're talking about JEDI with a G here, which of course makes the difference between handheld lasers in space and lasers in space that are attached to the site of the International Space Station and used to collect 3D forest structure on a global scale. Just before we get started with this podcast episode, I just want to say thanks. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I realize there is a ton of competition for your attention. And the fact that you choose to spend half an hour, sometimes 45 minutes, maybe an hour with me, listening to something that I've created, I, I really appreciate it. And I don't take it for granted. So thank you very much. Hi, Laura. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about something called the, the Jedi Project, which definitely sounds like it relates somehow to Star Wars. But I think before we do that, perhaps you could just introduce yourself to the listeners. Tell us about who you are, how you got involved in, in, in geospatial, and then we'll move on and talk about the, the Jedi Project from there. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. So I am a, a researcher and a professor, um, but I've been working with LIDAR and forests since I was an undergraduate student back in the, in the forests of, of Ontario, Canada. And I kind of got hooked and stuck with it from there. So did a master's, did a PhD, uh, did a postdoc over at NASA Goddard. But all of it has been focused on using LIDAR or laser technology to study forests in 3D. Wonderful. Okay, so JEDI and LIDAR, are they connected? Yes, JEDI is LIDAR. So JEDI, which is, uh, it stands for the Global Ecosystem Dynamics Investigation. Uh, so it's JEDI with a G, but pronounced a la Star Wars, as you pointed out. It is a, a spaceborne waveform LIDAR system. So it's essentially a space laser mission that is in space shooting laser beams or LIDAR beams down on at the planet as we speak. And why might we want to do that? Right. So we're essentially measuring forests in 3D to collect their height, their canopy cover, and their, importantly, above ground biomass or carbon content. So right now, until the JEDI biomass products are online, we don't actually have a very good map of Earth's forest carbon. And we need to know how much carbon there is so that when we see forest loss, we know how much carbon is being emitted to the atmosphere and contributing to climate change. And when we see forest regrowth, we know how much carbon's coming down out of the atmosphere to help mitigate against climate change. So JEDI is really providing this, uh, this great 3D information that we use to help understand and quantify and monitor the global carbon cycle. Okay, so I, I guess my next question is, is why is space? Why is space the right place to put this laser to, to do this kind of work? And the reason why I'm asking that is because there's plenty of closer to Earth platforms that we could use to collect really high resolution data. So well, why is space a good place to put the laser? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot of airborne LIDAR, as you pointed out, right? And, uh, and there has been for decades, but it's always local to regional scale. So you can't fly an airplane literally everywhere over the world and collect consistent data. So JEDI allows us to do slightly lower spatial resolution to what you would get with, uh, with airborne LIDAR, but at that global scale. So you have this consistent collection of data across all countries, across all ecosystems, 
And so you you don't have these sort of like little local spots that are super data rich and then massive data gaps in especially in really remote areas of the world where it's it's difficult to to get a plane. Okay, so we were talking about global coverage, large scale coverage. Is this possible because the Jedi LiDAR is on a purpose-built satellite or, or is it mounted somewhere else? Yeah, so Jedi is actually up on the International Space Station rather than its own free-flying satellite, which has some some trade-offs and pros and cons. So a lot of the satellite data that uh, that people are used to looking at from, uh, let's say, NASA USGS's Landsat program, those are all up on their own satellite. And the the orbit of the satellite has been designed to, to help fill the science application or the science need of those data. Jedi, on the other hand, is essentially like a refrigerator-sized box that's plugged into the side of the International Space Station, and it has three lasers in it. And so wherever the International Space Station goes, Jedi goes with it and is is collecting data under the ISS. So the, the pros there are essentially that you don't have to pay for your whole own satellite, which is like 10 times more expensive than, uh, than putting something on the ISS. But then the cons are that you don't have an orbit that can really be designed for the science purpose. And also you don't go over the poles. So there's like the astronauts are never looking directly down at the North Pole from the ISS, for example. Uh, so we, we do miss most of the boreal forest with Jedi, but we get really amazing coverage over the, the tropics, which are where the bulk of forest carbon is stored, as well as the temperate system. Can you talk a little bit about what kind of data you're getting back from the Jedi? Because I think a lot of people listening to this podcast will understand what point clouds look like, like the kind of point clouds we might get back from flying a, a LiDAR from a drone or perhaps a plane. Are we talking about the same kind of data when we talk about Jedi? Yeah, so no, <laughs> it actually looks totally different. Um, so if you are used to using airborne LiDAR, where you can see like these gorgeous point clouds, you can see the individual trees, you can see sometimes the individual branches and across the entire forest. So it's like this really rich wall-to-wall point cloud map. That is not what Jedi looks like at all. There's this trade-off between that high spatial resolution and the, the spatial scale that Jedi samples at. So a single Jedi waveform or LiDAR shot will come down hit the ground, hit the top of the trees first, and then the photons will continue and hit the ground, and then bounce back, giving what we call a a LiDAR waveform. And so what this kind of looks like is if you were to look at the side of a forest, like if you're standing on a road looking out at a forest, you're going to be seeing essentially like a cross-sectional profile of a 25-meter circle of that forest. And so you'll see photons reflected off the top of the canopy will bounce back to the International Space Station first. And then the photons reflecting off the ground will bounce back last. And then everything in the middle, the squiggle of the waveform, it's representative of the 3D structure of the forest there. So if there's like a lot of canopy and foliage right at the top of the waveform, like the bulk is on in, you know, in the top of a super tall tree, you're going to get more photons there. If there's like one skinny little tree, you get less photons at the top. And then if you have like a big bulk near the ground, you'll, you'll see this big peak in the curve near the ground. So it's totally different looking and feeling data than airborne LiDAR, but then you have it at this global scale. Could you talk to me about the resolution? What, what does this shot look like? What does the footprint of this look like on the ground? Yeah, so the spatial distribution of these shots. So one individual laser will illuminate about a 25 meter diameter circle. So it'll, it'll measure all of the, the trees in that 25 meter kind of plot size circle. And then as I said, it's not a wall-to-wall mapper mission. So you get billions of these 25 meter diameter circle samples across the world, but they're they're not right next to each other. So if you download some Jedi data, you'll see that there are these eight 
ground tracks or eight lines of these spots under the International Space Station. And so an individual footprint, one of those circular samples that gives you a waveform, those are spaced about 60 meters along track and about 600 meters between tracks. So that's the spatial distribution for each pass of the ISS. And then as the as the ISS keeps orbiting, you'll get kind of richer and richer data collected on, on the ground as you move forward in time. So I understand that this laser, the JEDI laser, is only going to collect data underneath the, the International Space Station. So what I'm wondering is, is there an opportunity here to task it or to point it in certain directions? And I'm thinking if you had an area that was of great importance that you weren't covering or wanted to cover more, or perhaps it was cloud-free and there was an option to get it today, can you point the laser at it and say, hey, I'm, I would like to get that area today? Yeah, so to some extent, absolutely, which is always a fun thing to communicate to people. It's like, we can point a space laser like at your backyard. But that is to some degree true. So there is some pointing capability. Um, by default, it will just point at Nader, so it'll point straight down. But then you can change the entire, like for an entire ISS orbit, you'd point it slightly off to one side or the other side if you're trying to target particularly important spots on the ground. And so we do do this a, a bit for our international we, we have a, a set of international researchers who have forest research sites where they've given us training data. And so if the ISS goes over and it just happens to be a cloudy day, because this is a near-infrared LIDAR system, it doesn't penetrate through clouds. So they'll just have no data that day. And so maybe next time the ISS is going over, we want to point toward that site to make sure that we're, we're collecting data in these particularly kind of research important or forests of ecological importance. So is there someone coordinating this, like coordinating, like looking at the clouds and saying, okay, today's a cloud-free day. Today we have an option of collecting this or looking at this particular thing here. Let's do this thing. Yeah. Is there someone sort of watching and monitoring and updating and, and tasking the laser? Yeah. So, so there, at NASA Goddard, there's a, there's a group that does this decision of for, for you know, each orbit, are we going to be pointing? But they don't do it based on the kind of current or future cloud conditions. They do it to essentially try and fill in as many of the gaps that exist in the in the global Jedi data set as possible. So there's, um, and I'm not on this group of, of people, but they essentially have a conversation and say like, okay, optimally, if we point a little bit this way, we're going to be filling all of these places that have never had Jedi data collected in them before. If we point a little bit more, then we're going to be collecting or filling in even more data gaps, et cetera. So essentially, they're trying to fill as much of the Earth's surface as possible, kind of dividing up into these one kilometer cells so that they fill as many of those one kilometer cells with JEDI samples. But then also there is that, um, that sort of set of priority sites that are particularly important. So it's, it's a discussion every time to set the, the pointing for the orbits. So how do we ground truth JEDI data? So for the forest carbon products, we rely on this group of these international researchers who have forest field plot data and airborne LIDAR, and we use those data to essentially train and, and validate our forest carbon products. We can use airborne LIDAR to do training and validation of, of height products and canopy cover products, but we really need the, the forest ground component, like people actually boots on the ground, hugging trees with measuring tapes to train the biomass models. And so we do have a situation where we have a wonderful international network where you have the field data, you have the airborne LIDAR, but it does have some pretty substantial spatial gaps. So for example, we don't have any training data at all right now in Central Asia, not very much in Southern South America, in, in West Africa, and in um, Southeast Asia, it's fairly minimal as well. 
So there are all of these places where we actually we don't have really well constrained biomass models. And so we're hoping that the forests there kind of grow similarly to forests elsewhere in the world and we extrapolate the models from where we do have training data. But that is one of the things that we're really um, looking to do in the future is uh, is collaborate with with more folks who have field data sets that, uh, that they can use and co- contribute to, to make Jedi's forest carbon products even more accurate. So a lot of people would try and do this with other global data sets, right? I think they would look at maybe SAR data, maybe they'd look at Landsat data, maybe they'd look at another global data set and try and, instead of going out there and collecting it on the ground in situ, they, they would look at another data set and try and make predictions based on that. Is that at all possible here? Unfortunately, not really. No matter how beautiful the technology you put in spaces, and of course, Jedi is collecting beautiful LiDAR data, you're never going to be directly measuring forest carbon or forest biomass. Technically, we we call it above ground biomass. So it's the carbon that is stored in the woody part of the trees that is above the ground. And so you're never directly measuring that. The only way to directly measure that is to actually go into the woods, fell a tree, dry it out and put it on a, a scale, right? So that's measuring its mass. That's actually weighing it. And of course, we don't want to do that everywhere or we would have no forests. But the closest we can get is to go into the woods, just like I did as an undergraduate student and people are doing all over the world today, go into the woods and actually measure the trees in in three dimensions. So you can do that either, which is like a measuring tape and uh, like a laser vertex to get the tree height, or you can use even better terrestrial laser scanning data, taking a LIDAR, plunking it down in the woods and creating this incredibly dense 3D point cloud that you can pull the entire woody volume of the individual trees out of. So we're working with this international set of researchers who have research sites all over the world where they have those traditional field measurements where they've actually measured the trees so we can estimate the forest carbon or biomass from those data sets. And then super importantly, also have the airborne LIDAR data coverage over those same sites that was collected around the same time. So for what we do to estimate carbon from the satellite data set, is we actually take airborne LIDAR and we make it look like JEDI so that we can empirically relate, here's how much carbon we have from measurements on the ground, here's what JEDI would look like if it was collected at the same time and place as that field measurement based on the airborne LIDAR, and then we build up empirical models to, uh, to apply them to the on-orbit JEDI so we can estimate how much carbon is in each uh, area that's sampled with a waveform. And it, that can then serve as training for all sorts of other satellite data sets, like for your, for your Landsats, for your, your SAR missions, for JEDI. But you, at least from a forest carbon perspective, you really are always going to need that, that boots on the ground component. And these data sets are hard to collect, especially in really remote forests. Sometimes it's just, it's very dangerous to, to get deep into the woods. They're big animals or they're, they're socio-political situations that, that limit uh, access to, to certain forests. So they're pretty hard won data. So we um we have to collaborate really really closely with the ground component, and we actually do have a, a new global activity called GeoTrees under the Group on Earth Observations that's trying to to fill this data gap, trying to get consistent field and airborne lidar collected all over the world, so that we can reduce the uncertainties on our forest carbon products. But it's it's really kind of early days and, and just ramping up. So just so I understand this, we're using the ground truth data to get a, like an in-situ measurement of what is actually happening, how much carbon is in this space on the ground. We're relating that back to JEDI. Could you imagine a time where we extrapolate out from JEDI and say, okay, we ground truth JEDI using in-situ measurements, and then we use JEDI to maybe ground truth or build a relationship to some other kind of, of imaging platform, perhaps SAR data, for example? 
Yeah, perfect. So that is what I think is the future of forest carbon and biomass mapping. So we're in this really exciting time where we finally have a satellite LIDAR that's designed for forest structure. I mean, that's JEDI, right? But on the horizon, we're going to be even more data rich because we have a whole series of other remote sensing technologies that will be launched in the next few years that will be collecting different types of forest structure data. So you mentioned SAR in particular, which is great um, because there are two really exciting new SAR missions that will be launched uh, in 2023. One is NASA ISRO's NISAR mission, and one is uh, from the European Space Agency, a mission called Biomass. And so both of these missions are going to be providing wall-to-wall SAR data. It can see through clouds, and it'll give you wall-to-wall mapping, which JEDI doesn't do. But there are known saturation issues with SAR data with respect to, to measuring tree height and biomass. And so we're hoping that JEDI, with its very robust samples of height measurements and biomass estimates, will be able to serve as training data for those new SAR missions when they're on orbit. So together, we really think that uh, the, ne- the best forest carbon and biomass products will be when you combine a bunch of different data sources compared to any one mission on its own. Yeah, thanks for mentioning that towards the end. I was just about to ask, if JEDI did its job really well, would it eventually become redundant and just, would we just use SAR instead? But it doesn't sound like that's, that would be the case. No, I think we're always going to be, or at least we'll hope, for a, for a time series of satellite LIDAR as well as a time series of SAR data. So they're really totally complementary data sets, giving you different pieces of information about Earth's forests. So ideally, we will have LIDAR for, you know, <laughs> from, from now on, and we'll have missions come in to, to, you know, once like the JEDI mission is over, hopefully we'll have new LIDAR missions launched. And then, you know, once we have these SAR missions, hopefully th- there will be a time series of those as well. Just out of curiosity, is, is JEDI the only LIDAR in space at the moment? No. So there is another NASA LIDAR system called ISAT-2. So we have these, we're, we're very data rich at the moment, which is, which is wonderful. So as you can imagine, ISAT-2 is not designed for forests, it's designed for ice. And that's a very important set of science questions because unfortunately ice is disappearing. So ISAT-2 is monitoring losses in, uh, in ice topography, sea ice, glaciers, etc. But it also does have a vegetation height product. So it's much more on the sort of exploratory side when it comes to to vegetation mapping because it wasn't sort of designed fit for purpose for forests. That being said, we are actually using ISAT-2 data to fill in the northern forest, the boreal forest that uh, that JEDI doesn't collect data in. So it's between these two NASA LIDAR missions right now with JEDI and ISAT-2. So combining them together, you get a, a truly global picture of Earth's forests where ISAT-2 will have kind of higher uncertainties in really tall, dense canopies like what you see in the tropics, where most of the carbon is. It does give really good data in, in temperate and boreal systems where, where the forests are a little bit sparser and shorter. So m- measuring ice or, and looking at vegetation, they, they seem like two different problems to solve. Are we talking about two different lasers as well? We are, yeah. So JEDI is a near-infrared LIDAR system, and it's a waveform LIDAR system. Whereas ISAT-2 is a green wavelength LiDAR system, and it's a photon counting system. So it essentially, data from ISAT-2 looks like kind of like a really noisy point cloud that goes on forever in like a never-ending transect that's about 13 meters wide. But it's it's like quite, quite sparse and, and noisy. So you'll have a lot of like um, green photons that are just bouncing around, especially during the day because it's like reflected sunlight. And so in the photon counting system, some of those, those noise photons get recorded. And so it looks like this kind of, 
yeah, fuzzy, blurry point cloud that does give you really great um, elevation and, and forest height information in some areas, but tends to sort of have a, a saturation in places like the dense tropics. Whereas JEDI gives you these cookie cutter samples of, of height and uh, the JEDI laser has been designed to be able to penetrate up until like 99% canopy cover. So even in like the densest tropics, you're going to get really good information from, from JEDI. So when I think about these two lasers, I think that we're, we're probably not just collecting information about ice surfaces and we're probably not just collecting information about vegetation surfaces. Can they be used for other things as well? So I was thinking about JEDI. I was wondering if it could be used for agricultural applications. Yeah, so this is kind of the, the fun thing about any new satellite technology, right? So like JEDI and ISATU, these are both really like new and novel satellite LIDAR systems. And so there are these core applications, like JEDI, for example, is making these forest carbon and biomass maps, making these forest height and canopy cover maps. We know that we're filling some, some scientific gaps with those data sets. But because all NASA data is free and open, people are going to start trying out these data sets for all sorts of other things. So there was actually a recent paper that came out that was using uh, JEDI for agricultural height applications. And there was, there was a paper that came out that was looking at um, using ISAT-2 for, for uh, shallow ocean bathymetric mapping because the green photons can penetrate through, through clear water. So there are all of these like cool new applications of these data sets. And I'm really excited to see what else, what else pops up that we've never even considered using JEDI for. Yeah, yeah, I, I can imagine. So sometimes when I think about new data sets or new ways of describing the world, oftentimes it requires new tooling to be built around them. Is that the case for, for JEDI? Or can we just use the existing, perhaps, image processing libraries that we already use, the existing pieces of code we use, the existing projects out there? Or are people building new things to help cope with this data? Yeah, so because the data, as you say, are so new, there aren't really many sort of turnkey uh, solutions, like existing software packages and such, um, to use to use these new data sets. So uh, for JEDI, most of the the new novel analysis, it, it's you know people are developing their own code and their own tools to to do that. So there are a few packages that have come out, like R packages and Python packages, to do some basic JEDI analysis. But they're all relatively immature still because people are still just trying to explore the data and see what they might you know want to use it for. So there are some uh, notebooks through the NASA Data Distribution Centers for JEDI. That's the LPDAC and ORNL DAC, and they have some like Jupyter notebooks to to help people get started with the data. But for, for most of the, the science and applications, people are, are having to develop their own code. Is NASA also creating derivatives based on, on the raw data that people can look at? When you say derivatives, you mean like, um, like data products that are a little bit more processed? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So, so NASA um, puts out like the raw waveforms. So you'll see like the actual, you know, those, those squiggles, those 25 meter, you know, circular footprints with the waveforms that are geolocated. And so those are in JEDI's level one products. But then we have these like further levels of products, level two, level three, level four, that are like more and more mature and designed for, for certain science applications. So the level two products, those uh, they're called like level 2A and 2B. Those turn those waveforms into um, estimates of the elevation under the forest or just the elevation if there's no vegetation there, as well as canopy height, canopy cover, plant area index, etc. So they're called footprint level products because they are representative of those, those individual LIDAR shots and they have these sort of ecologically meaningful variables in them. And then we also have very fairly recently released estimates of carbon for each of those footprints, and those are in the level 4A product. 
And then there are also gridded versions of Jedi products that are coming online for uh, like a gridded one kilometer height product uh, topography and, uh, and importantly, biomass. So the one kilometer Jedi biomass product is forthcoming in probably the next few weeks to, to months. But it's a very exciting, highly anticipated product because it's like our actual, it'll be like a raster product of how much carbon is, is where in the, in the world. Wow. That, that, that will be really interesting to see how people react to that, I think. Yeah, we can't wait to see how people are, are going to use these products. So we've been talking now for about half an hour, rather casually, about shooting lasers from a space station back at Earth and, and using them to collect data. Do you still have a sense of wonder when you think about this project? And, and if so, is it a sense of wonder in terms of the technical accomplishment of putting a laser in space and shooting it at Earth? Or is it a sense of wonder about what this accomplishment is going to make possible? Oh, that's a great question. I'd say probably both. So when I was a PhD student when the Jedi grant was written, and I was working in a research lab under the supervision of Ralph Dubaya, who is the principal investigator, kind of like the lead on, uh, on Jedi at the University of Maryland. And he had been working for decades with this man named Brian Blair at NASA Goddard, who's the instrument scientist on, on Jedi. And they knew the importance of putting this LIDAR in space to, to fill this, this carbon knowledge gap. But it was always something that we were looking toward like as the potential on the horizon. We hope that this happens. So now, after knowing how much effort, like decades of, of work and research went into creating the mission concept and actually building the instrument and putting it up in space, now to start seeing like academic research papers coming out using the data, to see excitement in the broader community to you know, interact with decision makers who can use Jedi biomass products to actually help better manage and report on their, their forest carbon and, and carbon changes. It's just so exciting to see that, that this has become a reality. Yeah, I, I can only imagine if you've been working on it for that long and then to see it, to see the data coming back and start to explore it. I, I totally get the excitement around that. I never asked before, but I think it's probably a good thing to understand. How long has this project been running for and how long do we anticipate it will run for is is there has somebody already said that the the lifespan of this project is x oh that is <laughs> that's a really good and, and tough question um so we did we launched in december of 2018 so we just had our sort of third year since launch birthday you know a few a few days ago and so the original mission was proposed to just be a two-year mission but the lasers themselves are working beautifully and should be good for up to 10 years right so so the lasers will be working fine probably when we end up having to take the the mission off orbit. It has been formally extended until January 2023, but we're really really hoping we can convince the the relevant decision makers that we could leave it um, up on orbit. Like this is a really kind of climate critical mission and so it will be an extremely sad day if you have these perfectly functional lasers that are, you know, collecting forest carbon data and then the, like the plan right now is to to take it off of the ISS and just let it burn up in like the saddest sort of digital funeral ever. Um, so we'll, we will go at least until January 2023. But we're really, really hoping that we'll be able to, to stay on orbit for longer because, you know, theoretically, we could get 10 years of amazing data out of these lasers. So uh, is three years going to be enough or the, this time span that you know that you have today, is that going to be enough to achieve sort of statistical significance in terms of the amount of data that you've collected and the time frame that you've collected it over? Yeah, well, it, it will. Uh, so the mission did have some like sort of core science goals, which are essentially to like 
map 80% of the one kilometer cells that Jedi samples with, you know, less than 20% uh, uncertainty in their carbon numbers. So there's this sort of like science goal that we'll for sure meet. But of course, the longer you can have these, these lasers on orbit, the less the uncertainty will be, the more accurate. And of course, a lot of the, the little data gaps in the, the 20% that might just have been missed because of cloud cover or whatever, we can hopefully fill those gaps as well. And then super importantly, I, I had mentioned that these SAR missions are going to be launching in, in you know, 2023. Probably those data streams will be coming online in like 2024. And so to just miss that overlap between Jedi and these upcoming SAR missions would be a little bit tragic. <laughs> um, so, so that's an, another big incentive for trying to keep them on orbit and collecting data. So what do you think the killer app is going to be or the, the killer piece of research that's going to convince these decision makers to, to extend the mission? I'm wondering if you could put like some sort of piece of research or a project on the table in front of them that you knew was going to convince them that, yes, we, we need to keep doing this thing. We need to maintain what we already have. What do you think that would be? Oh, man, if I knew I would do it, <laughs> but because um, I'm not sure who actually makes these decisions. But I think that the main thing is that, you know, if we can really show that we're working with countries who are using these data sets to try and, and better manage their forests toward climate mitigation, I'm hoping that that will be the most incentivizing um, activity that we're doing. And we are doing that. We're working as like an international group of earth observation folks who are making these, these forest carbon and biomass maps. We're trying to work directly with countries to make sure that the products that we make and the way that we're reporting those uncertainties are directly useful for uh, forest management and reporting. So the, the idea here is that, you know, for example, at, at COP26 in, in November, there was this big declaration that we're going to end deforestation by 2030, right? And so we can see deforestation from, for example, the Landsat record. We can see when a, a forest pixel goes from bright green forest to urban to agriculture, et cetera. But we don't know how much carbon is lost when you see that conversion. And so that's the, the piece that, that Jedi is filling. That's the piece that these active remote sensing data sets can, can fill to say, okay, not only are we still seeing deforestation from space, but this is how much carbon is being contributed to the, the atmospheric concentrations from that forest conversion. So it's arguably never been more important from a policy perspective to do earth observation of forests in the sort of context of these global commitments. And we really feel that Jedi is going to be providing a critical piece of that information. And so if we can just communicate that to the right people that please don't <laughs> take something offline that's providing this type of information, hopefully they'll leave it up there. I hope so too. Hey, Laura, I really want to thank you for your time. But I think more than for your time, I want to thank you for your enthusiasm. It is so refreshing to talk to someone like you who really believes in something, who's really into it and passionate about it. And yeah, I, I just really appreciate it. Before I let you go though, where can the folks go if they want to either reach out to you or learn more about the, the Jedi Project or perhaps try some of this data so we can create the research which is going to make people or force people to see that they need to maintain the system? Yeah, um, so there are several sources. So you can, If you want to just learn a little bit more about the mission, you can go to jedi.umd.edu, which is the mission website. You can follow us. <laughs> it's kind of nerdy, but follow us at Jedi Knights on Twitter, uh, Jedi <laughs> underscore Knights. And then also there, there are great data and tutorial pages on uh, if you go to just NASA Earth Data and type in Jedi, you'll, you'll be directed to some of those materials. I just need to know, is there any other Star Wars acronyms that we need to be aware of before we, we dive into the Jedi Project? 
<laughs> I know at some point it's like we we gotta calm down with the Star Wars stuff. We we use a lot of uh, sort of nerdy jokes in our in our team. There is one other project that was funded through NASA's carbon monitoring system called Obi Wan, which I think st- yeah. It's so it's using Jedi data and it's the Obi Wan one, and I think it stands for online biomass inference through like waveforms and inventory or something. So it's kind of a forced acronym, but it's very cute. So you can use. Jedi data with Obi-Wan to do, you know, forest carbon accounting. Unbelievable. Yep. Thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. So I really hope you enjoyed that episode with Laura Duncanson. I will put a a link to the, the Jedi project in the show notes of this episode so you can follow along there. And th- there'll be a ton of links in, in this particular episode. I also want to point you towards a some of the previous episodes we've published that are around the topic of, of LIDAR, just in case you're interested in that. So the first one I want to point you towards is an episode called Open Topography. Again, there'll be links to all these in the show notes. There was also an episode called LIDAR from Drones, which is well worth checking out. I talked to one of the co-founders of a project called the Earth Archive Project a while ago. Well, the goal of the Earth Archive Project is to use LIDAR to scan the entire world, the entire surface of the world. So we have an archive of the way things are now. And I think if you're working with LiDAR data or perhaps interested in point cloud data, there's an episode called PDAL, the Point Data Abstraction Library, which is well worth checking out. Again, there'll be links to all of this in the show notes. So just click on the little information button in your podcast application, wherever you're listening to this, expand the the text there and you should see links, links to these episodes or I mean, you can just scroll back through the archive and look for the names and find them there as well. We're coming to the end of 2021, and I think I'm going to have to break my promise. So one of the promises of this podcast is that it's a weekly podcast, and I'll be there for you each week. But I I think I need a break. I I think I need to spend some time with my family. I think I need to just switch off completely over the, the the upcoming holiday period. So I just want to be really clear. I'm not talking about stopping producing a podcast. I'm not talking about stopping quitting the podcast. I'm just talking about taking a break. So maybe a couple of weeks off over the holiday period where I just have a chance to sort of wind down, spend time with my family without thinking about recording new episodes and editing episodes and publishing them on a regular basis. Just sort of stepping away from the process a little bit and looking at it and and I guess reconsidering it. Okay, that's it for me. That's it for another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. Thank you very, very, very much for tuning in again this week. I really appreciate it. As always, you're more than welcome to reach out to me. You can catch me on Twitter at Mapscaping or on LinkedIn. Okay, I hope to hear from you and we will talk again soon.